Welcome to the Ideal Investor Show. This is the podcast where we help you challenge your mindset and discover where you are. Tired of stories about other people's success? We can help you change your life, determine your time freedom point and join us on the journey to financial success. Let's go. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ideal Investor Show where we bring you great guests and every once in a while you have to listen just to me to talk about how do we actually create our passive income portfolio and how do we actually get to a point that we call the time freedom point. And today we have a great guest because some of us are already in his neck of the woods and we want to learn a little more how to do it better. Jim Shields is with us. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Axel. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And before we get into exactly what you guys do and how you do it and why people should consider working with you, tell us a little bit how you, both from a business and personal perspective, got to where you are today. Yeah, like any real estate investor entrepreneur, it definitely wasn't a straight line. But 24 years ago, I put my offer on my first property in Lompoc, California, and it got accepted. I remember hyperventilating in my kitchen, 152000 for a three-family house, which now you can look back and know it's you know gone way up in value on that, but it was pretty scary. And uh, But that was my start. And a mentor of mine always said, you know, if you can say in one sentence what your real estate niche is, you're probably going to do better because you're not trying too many different things. So when I first started in this business, Axel, I would buy, fix, and resell HUD foreclosures, which are a type of government foreclosure in California. And then I started to buy, fix, and rent foreclosures and work with investors on them. And then I moved to Florida around 2004 because I thought the fundamentals were better. The landlord laws were better, did a lot of more foreclosures. And then 2008 came, which was not a fun time for any of us real estate investors. But we survived, protected our investors, and there opened up this just wide sea of bank foreclosures. So I started to buy bank foreclosures in bulk, uh, renovate them, rent them out or sell them. And that's how I met my now building partner. And by about 2014, we were scratching our heads because we said, gosh, it's really hard to find these fixer uppers now. There's so much competition and the pricing isn't really working. So we had this thought, what if we built our own investment properties for ourselves and our investors instead of trying to find old homes? And that's how Build to Rent started. And that first year was a messy experiment, just like anything. We built about $3 million worth of property, but we could see the model had legs and it really took off. And fast forward nine years later, last year, we did $185 million in sales. Uh, oh. So our niche today is we build new construction rental property, single family, duplexes and quads in high growth areas in Florida. And high growth just means there's got to be population growth, economic growth, a good affordability index, which we might talk about today, desirability, something drawing them to the area, and healthy supply and demand. We obviously want to go where they need more houses, not where there's too many. Yeah, absolutely. And all those things, I think everybody would agree that at least anybody who is in investing in real estate, that those would be the criteria we all would like to see ideally all in one place. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, it's tough to get all five of them. You know, if yeah. you get four out of the five, you're doing well. If you find five out of five, you can do really good. And that's why we picked Florida as our home area. We started in Northeast Florida and now we've branched into 12 different markets in Florida. Yeah, that's really cool. And I mean, I want to talk a little bit about like in the opening, I said we have some of our tribe members already invested or in the process of investing in Florida, some in new uh, builds, some in existing. And mm -hmm. a 
bunch of questions have come up and having you as an expert here, I think will really help us to get maybe some answers. So one of the first things I would like to ask is that some of our investors have actually gotten disappointing news from their builders because they were told that the escalation clauses within the contracts had to be pulled supposedly because of the increase in cost. Can you talk a little bit about is that really such an issue? Because in one case, I remember that was basically an escalation of like 20% in like four months or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, when you're a builder, you have what's called a contingency, you know, maybe 18 to 22% in building fluctuation materials. No builder from the little guy all the way up to the nationals was ready for what we just experienced at the uh, middle part of the pandemic when the inflationary effect took off. We've never seen jumps in a hundred years in that short of a time in building repairs. And so unfortunately, when you're a builder, you do have to have an escalation clause. And if it's a fair builder, it's just there to make sure you can keep the integrity of the property without an additional profit margin. So we had to do that for our clients as well during the pandemic, because when that inflationary effect took off, there was a couple of different options. You could return money, which we gave the choice of doing with an interest rate of their deposit. You could continue to build, but then you had to obviously work on an escalation clause to be able to show the difference in the material cost before and now. You know, Or we saw some really scary situations where there were builders out there that were not very prudent and they were not able to return deposit in order to continue to build. That was a real messy thing. So- right. For people out there that got the escalation clause, what we would do for our clients is the good news for Florida is although there were material price increases, Axel, the rent amounts and the values went up even higher. So even though we started at square one, the percentages were much better for 98% of our buyers. And what we did for them on that is said, we have to exercise the escalation clause and what we can do is either if you can agree to this, we're just raising it enough to cover the additional materials. This is not an additional profit margin by any means, even less most of the time. And we can do that for you. Here's what the values have gone up to here, what the rents are going up to. Or if that doesn't work, we will refund you 100% with 6% interest on your deposit. So it wasn't in vain. And most of our clients, we had good relationships continued on. So that was a very strange time. The good news, Axel, is now that we've caught up on those back builds, we are now finishing properties on demand in less than 90 days. We're constantly building. So for our product now moving forward for new investors and for most investors, whether they're working with us or others, you shouldn't have to worry about escalation clauses at this time in the market. The materials have kind of settled. The subcontracting is settled. So there shouldn't be a lot of big surprises for people who are getting into the game now. And we're not going through any escalation clauses with our new clients at this time. Yeah, and let me ask you just for confirmation one clarification because what we have seen is that and nobody should be surprised about that happening in florida in general is that there are obviously storms every once in a while like i mean there were some pretty big ones recently but it also seems like in certain communities where there is a lot of growth that the permitting departments are not necessarily always the fastest especially when somebody gets into a deal where something is built for them Because some of what I have seen is that the escalation clause was basically triggered 
because the contract was originally signed like 14 months ago. And then it took like months and months and months to finally get the permit. And then when the builder actually started going out, getting the materials together and looking, you know, to how many people do I hire? And I'm not saying they do this individually for every house, but like in general to say, okay, now we have a bunch of permits coming in for this particular area because it seems like the communities are saying, okay, this particular zone, we have like 50 sitting there and now we're working through them. That's at least the impression from the outside. So yeah. I think I understand in some extent that if you sign like a, let's say a $295,000 contract 14 or 16 months ago, and now they actually, they get the permits, we're getting ready to actually build that in that time period, wages and inflation and costs and stuff like that could have gone up. Would you agree that that plays a role? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And with the building departments, you know, Florida was known as a state that opened up through the pandemic a lot earlier than other places. However, the building departments were working from home mm. until about midway through the pandemic. So the degree that it slowed down was shocking. So, you know, Axel, for five years before the pandemic started, about six to eight months, that was our build time. You know, really not as fast as some of the biggest guys, but definitely faster than others. So we were comfortable with that. None of us were expecting this kind of slowdown. And when the building departments were working from home, I mean, the stack of permit applications just went through the roof. So it took right. forever once they got back to the office to work through that. That was a not a fun situation. However, you know, not fun at all. But the good news is we have to look at will what just happened in the last 18 months happen moving forward? Could it? Yes. Is it probable? No. And here's why. First off, the inflationary effect is taken off. Materials shot up and now they've come down to a, a more settling level. This is still way above 2019, but below what it was in 2021 when right, it hit its right, peak. Yeah. So that, that's a really good thing for all of us. For my clients and for myself now, if I'm building a property, I say, what will it take me for a property I'm doing today? I know I had slowdowns on properties I had going through builds in the pandemic, but what will it take today? And we've really seen the build times come back to quite a good level again. Okay. Yeah, that's very good. Now, the other thing I think is at least worth touching on and speaking about with somebody, an expert that is basically on the ground is doing the work there. And that is, I mean, the media has, and I personally would say rightfully so, been pointing out not only opening sooner in the pandemic, but also whether it's from the West Coast or the East Coast, more probably even from the East Coast, a significant transition maybe, to call it that, of people who had jobs where they didn't have to go back to the office, where they didn't want to live in winter storms anymore, where they didn't want to pay up to the highest taxes in the country and decide, hey, Florida would actually be a kind of nice place to be. So we, you know, this, we definitely... Pandemic was a tough time, but Florida really benefited from a population growth. We already had projections because of the baby boomer migration for years here, but the pandemic threw everybody's charts and estimates off. No one knew that there was going to be this much growth. Like Southwest Florida was the fastest growing area in the nation by far. And a couple of things, people just liked the policies through the pandemic. They liked the business atmosphere. And I think an important thing for investors was the landlord laws. 
Right. Now, you know, I've been I've been in this for 24 years. Actually, I started in California, as you know, and that's not known for its friendly landlord laws. And that's why I came to Florida. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I lived in Butte and I know Lompoc very well. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you know, so it's and I just think it's important for anyone in your community or that to ask the question, is the state I'm investing in landlord friendly? It's a very simple question, but it's a very important one because you have to be able to collect rent to make a rental property work. And yeah, that sounds... cash flow, that's why we do it. We want to make the cash flow. I mean, the reason I asked the question about the influx, I mean, one thing is clearly the policy stuff that you mentioned. I think the other part is, and it's debatable, I personally believe that the number of people who will basically going forward, I don't even want to put a timeline on it, be able to work from home doing a job just as well as if they were in a cubicle. And I mean, part of the work that I do outside of the investing world is an advisory service or advising life science companies, because that's basically been my previous specialization. And in that case, you know, unless you're working in some sort of a lab or manufacturing process, there's such a highly, highly, highly regulated environment. It takes a lot of people and a lot of oversight and a lot of knowledge work is what I call it. And these knowledge workers, I don't see any reason really seriously to bring them ever back to the cubicle. Yes, there will be cases where companies should and will say, okay, every so often we want to come together to build like team spirit and that kind of stuff. But on a regular basis, I think a certain percentage, and I don't know, some people say 40%, I don't know what the real number is, of people will be consistently be able to work from home or, or at least not be bound to work or live very close to where their company or company headquarter is. But I brought up the question because I'm wondering, you know, it used to be, I know you started that way, I started that way, that part of this whole economic equation was always, well, you want to invest in areas where the people will have consistently dependable jobs. And with with this idea of work from home, it's not so easy anymore to say, okay, well, I have a tenant who lives in one of my properties, regardless of what the location is, let's say in Cape Coral, but the company he is working for and making a six-figure income is in San Francisco or in LA or in Boston or whatever, right? Like, so I'm kind of curious what you're thinking, how much of this continued influx, because I believe if we want to buy built to rent houses, we kind of at least would like to continue to see, maybe not as a crazy level, but you know, at some level to continue to have influx of people who say, well, now I'm in a sunshine state. Now I can actually afford a place that I don't have to pay a million dollars for, right? Stuff like that. That's some some good things to unpack there, Axel. You know, first off, they're not seeing a slowdown right now in the Florida migration. They're just not. And that's the statistics talking, not me. Right, right. People still want to be here. And that affordability index is really important, like you mentioned. Affordability index is just, what is the average family income for a household compared to the average medium price of a home in that area. And Florida, the main markets we go into, and we don't invest in Tampa or Orlando or Miami. We're in second tier markets that have a lot of desirability, but a better affordability index, a really healthy one. You know, so take Jacksonville. We've had a lot of people actually come from California where I came from to invest here. Well, for a while, they wanted to stay closer to home. They wanted to get out of California, but stay closer to home. So they were going to Salt Lake City or Boise, Idaho. Right. But when you look at the affordability index, the median family income for those two markets was right around 60,000, which is the same for Jacksonville, Florida. However, 
the median price of a home in Jacksonville, Florida was a quarter million dollars less than markets like Salt Lake, markets like Boise, Idaho. And even though it's cheaper than California, we still were, even though we've gone up in value, we're still that much more affordable, which is nice. And people will like to be warm and by the water. And I think one thing too, that's important where people say, gosh, so many people are just to backtrack on something you said, people are, you know, moving there, they're buying a rental property and they're worried that the tenants won't pay. You know, we were very select on our screening, Axel, where qualifying for income, we wanted a permanent job. If people right. were just living off of a government short-term loan, we didn't see that as, you know, if we, we were doing two-year leases, we couldn't qualify them because that had a run-out period. So I'd say about 97% of our people had employment, which is really important because, again, jobs allow people to pay rent. Yeah, and, and you basically must have anticipated because I was just about to ask you what the ratio or the percentage of people is that is actually in work or having a job, like you just said, and using that income to pay the rent versus people who decide, okay, I don't really want to own a place anymore. And I mean, I have been very fortunate to own houses all over the country, not for rent, but even for myself, you know, for the family yeah. to live. And there's no doubt that when you own a house, there's always something to do on the house. Right. And that's why I say for the investment properties, I want to have property management because I don't want like 10 things to do on 10 houses all the time. Right. But the yeah. point is, I have seen and have talked to quite a few people who said, you know, I can actually see myself retiring and renting if it's, you know, a reasonable price because I just want, don't want to take care of the house. Oh, yeah. right? And so I'm yeah. kind of wondering to what extent when you say 97% of the people are at work, is that potentially shifting to people who say, okay, I want to retire in a nice place? We do have retirees that rent our places, especially the smaller units. However, okay. what I've seen is the retirees coming here are providing jobs that these younger families live in, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we work with replaceable income, Axel. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. There's not a lot of senior vice presidents of companies renting our houses. There's just not. There's more of a, a middle income renter, which we like because if a middle income person loses their job, it's called a level of replaceable income. It's normally right. easier statistically for them to find another job, which gives us a lot of safety. If the senior VP of a big company goes out of a job, it can take a long time to find more employment. Plus the numbers in those higher properties don't normally work. That's why we stick right below the median. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, the other part is if we jump on that thought train of work from home, then there are also, and in, in, you know, if we were ever to decide to work together, I would definitely want to have a discussion on what industries should be favored, right? I mentioned the life science industry. There's so much demand and extreme growth. And I think other industries like AI right now and certain other growth industries where if somebody were to lose a job in this kind of like manager, like maybe senior manager or, you know, junior director level or stuff like that, they're not really typically losing their job. They're actually leaving on their own <laughs> thing because they want to get to the next level. And there's so much demand that it's not hard to get new jobs, even if you're not located. And that's a big benefit, right? They're not located in the location of the company. So the market has basically, in my opinion, opened up to, you know, you can work for anybody anywhere in the country if you bring the proper qualification, you know, and if you're dependable and all that kind of stuff. Now, I would like for you, if you don't mind, 
to maybe pick an example that you can give to our audience where you would say, okay, so this is like a location here is the typical price level size of property, expected cash flow, expected rent level. Can you take us through like a little vignette like that? Yeah, uh, let me take you through that. I do want to add one important Florida question that always comes up and you hit on it before and we we got into another interesting dialogue on something else. <laughs> okay. And that's on storms and hurricanes. Right. 2004 right. insurance, right? Lately everybody's talking about insurance. <laughs> well, people say insurance in Florida has gone up so much. And I always preface the question, Axel, which property? And the reason was there is a large difference in risk assessment for an insurance company for an older property versus a new property. And I'll tell you why. In 2004, Hurricane Charlie hit Punta Gorda, an area we build in now, decimated the area. My dad's cousin lived there. Terrible. After 2004, the government stepped in and said, we are changing the building guidelines. You need to build up 13, 14 feet above sea level, stronger structural integrity, fasteners, the whole nine. And that's kind of expensive and a pain, but that's what you have to do for new construction. You know, the dirt's expensive. We have to bring it in. And what I can compare it to is, you know, we just went through that large hurricane, Hurricane Ian, you know, which was almost a category five down in Southwest Florida. We found out how important that new requirement was because we had almost no damage on hundreds of construction projects down there. Even though you saw in downtown Fort Myers just absolutely, you know, annihilated, our new construction projects were fine. In fact, over about 278 projects, we had four, just four that needed insurance claims and not because of any flooding, but these four had just started construction. It was just the freestanding walls and the wind knocked the walls over. Yeah, so it was just absolutely. No, I, I get that. I mean, somebody actually, because we have some investments in Cape Coral, said the storm was one of the biggest, fastest renovation projects ever seen, right? Because it took all the old stuff pretty much. Yeah, away. And yeah I mean, for yeah. me, I, I I don't know if you know, but I'm originally from Germany. And uh, when yeah. I first came to the US, I was like, how can you build houses with these wooden sticks, right? Like, I've never seen that before. For me, a house was something that had an inner wall of stone and then a little airspace, like maybe four or five inches of airspace and then some kind of siding or oftentimes brick or something like that. So when I saw how quickly like the framers could frame up a house, including the roof and stuff like that, and it's not that the European uh, masons are slow or anything like that, but when you Ooh. say, okay, you know, and I actually did a little bit of research when we started investing in Florida and found that like, I think it, it's all related to some kind of Miami building code kind of thing that basically says, okay, you build much more like European buildings now than what you would find probably somewhere, you know, like in the Northwest or in the Southeast or something like that, you know? So yeah. I'm actually glad about that because I know that a lot of buildings in Europe are hundreds of years old, you know, and, and had gone through all kinds of storms. I lived in the wine country for a while when I was in the Air Force and it was flooding all the time and everybody had a tiled basement and real solid walls and when the storm was on you went through with your spray gun and you know obviously before the storm everything that would be harmed by water would be brought up into the house good to go they, they literally knew how to do it they never wanted to move away from the wine country they just made the houses fit purpose you know? yeah that's what we found with florida building up on that higher ground and you know, these old houses can be at two three feet above sea level we're at 13 14 feet that makes all the difference and then with the new requirements of build you know you have to have build to a certain standard that will be you know of a hurricane resistance 
and that's a pretty stringent thing you have to follow but it's a good thing you know as a builder even if you had bad flooding if you had a concrete slab and real solid built like mason walls and stuff like that the impact is nowhere near as bad as if it's a normal stick built house you know so no i'm totally with you that's why i also not really totally understand what the deal is with the insurance because those are probably some of the most solid houses in the whole united states you know but yeah okay. location is important too and even if you're in a coastal community you get a they risk assess it lower if you're five miles inland so yeah. if you're five miles inland from the coast, so a lot of our markets, you know, Jacksonville and parts of Southwest Florida, even though they're coastal communities, we build five miles inland. So that helps your insurance as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's see if you can give the audience a little bit of an example, and mainly because we are very interested, obviously, from a passive income development perspective to get an idea what is currently possible. Everybody knows we have high interest rates. Uh, you spoke about affordability and increasing rent levels. Can you give us like just the core numbers that we can typically? Yeah, so so I'll give an overview and then we can niche down from there. So most of our product is either single family, duplexes, okay. or quads. They're right. ranging from two hundred and fifty thousand to eight hundred thousand. Okay. You know, for the single family up to the quads. Most of our properties are about a, a six cap. You know, for a cap rate, we're at about a six cap. And then with the cash on cash return with tax savings, you're looking at eight to 12%. So that's about the standard that we get in at. We do offer in-house financing, which has been a really solid thing for us. You know, recently we've had a program as low as 4.75, which obviously helped get people into the property, right? Because if you're starting at a 7% interest compared to a 4.75, that can eat up your cash flow. So we actually do in-house financing where we actually purchase money. We purchase mortgages and then offer it to our clients. And you can lock in anywhere from 4.75 to 5.75. I think we might have a common friend by the name of Keith Weinhold who told me about that. (laughs) Yeah, Keith's a good guy. We do a lot with Keith. So his people loved what we did and it changes the numbers. You know, financing is key. Good leverage is key. So we help with that. So, you know, and rents again will vary from the low end to $1,100 for a small two bedroom unit up to, you know, $2,600 for a property, even up to, you know, $2,800. So that gives you a little bit of the range of where we're at. So if you take, I mean, our investments are mainly single family. Can you say, I mean, with four and a half percent or let's say 5%, what kind of cash flow after paying everything net cash flow can people look at? It's going to go, you know, a duplex and quad are going to produce more than a single family. Right, of course. Yeah, yeah. But a single family with the, you know, the tax savings included, you're going to be between six and 7% a lot of the time. And that's on new construction as well. So a lot of people, when I used to do older homes, I've learned now between having older homes and newer homes, I have to budget a lot more for maintenance and repairs right. compared to the newer homes. And so we cannot match the cap rates or even cash flow of let's say a midwest property but i know they can't match our growth patterns uh, or our rental growth patterns oh absolutely i mean if i mean we are obviously still trying to get anywhere as close as possible to the one percent rule right yeah which we used to aim for we used to aim for that with our older houses that we'd renovate so the new construction we figured we would have to have a higher buy-in with a lower cash flow below the one percent but what we've seen especially you know, through the growth patterns of the last nine years, it's a slower planting of a seed at first, but we've seen as the years go with just some very conservative growth, the rental values and the 
Overall, property values have climbed much more consistently and stronger than our older homes that we renovated. Right. Yeah. And I mean, for me, the, and I, I teach this and tell this to our clients all the time, the 1% is basically used, at least we have always used it, especially like you said, for renovated properties to be able to say, okay, and then you put away 5% for maintenance and 5% for CapEx and 5% for vacancy. So those 15% now, the vacancy you know, you might be able to say, okay, 3% is okay because you have longer term lease agreements. But what you definitely don't have to consider and 10% is probably close to the difference, right? Like I would think what I've seen lately, you can get to like 0.8, 0 0.85. Well, you know, if you add like another point because you don't have to do maintenance and capex, wouldn't make any sense on the brand new property, you're actually pretty close. And then when you guys buy down the interest rate, I think the biggest thing for our audience to realize what kind of a huge benefit that is, is I've been preaching that, yes, if we really have to do an open market 7.5% right now, all that means is that some point in three years or so, we have to refund. We believe in that as well. You know, and, and something else that's important, Axel, is turnover. You know, we've done thousands of fixer-upper homes and we've done thousands of new construction now. And the I would say the length of tenancy is about double. So when you're keeping that tenant longer, as you know, without maintenance and repairs or turnover costs, that can be a great acceleration to your position on that property. And that's something very important that has helped a lot of our investors. Yeah. And one thing, I mean, that goes along with that, and I, I'm sure you, you hopefully agree that when somebody is basically literally the first occupant of a brand new house, the likelihood of them really kind of consider and, and treating it more like their own house I believe is significantly higher than yes. an existing property, even if it is freshly renovated, it still doesn't feel quite exactly the same like a brand new house in a brand new neighborhood. And therefore, I mean, I've seen it in my own portfolio that, you know, in that scenario, people, I have tenants literally that have been in the house for five years. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so important for growing a rental portfolio. Yeah. Those first three to five years are absolutely crucial. So if you can keep down maintenance and repairs and longer tenancy, that is so important to getting into a property right. But if you spend a lot of money on turnover and maintenance and repairs, that's where people get in trouble. That's where they feel overwhelmed and, and underwater. And that's why we wanted to reverse it. And we've just seen a, a easier trajectory with that new construction because it yeah. takes that part out of the equation. You know, older houses... We joked, Axel, I, I own them, so don't, and, it, and I've, I was a rehabber for many years, <laughs> yeah. but I know about the three-year curse. Yeah. And we joke about it at our office where, you know, we can do a new roof, new heating and cooling, new plumbing, update kitchens, baths, electric. And it seems I got to up my budgets in three years for maintenance and repairs. These are older homes, 40s, 50s, and 60s. They were made different, you know, and the new construction, you know, nine years in on this, we haven't seen that three-year curse come upon us, which is really, really satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. And there's one more thing, and at least I'm a big proponent for that. I'm kind of curious, and then we probably come to a finish line here. And that is the possibility or the ability, if you want to call it that, on a new construction property to get relatively favorable insurance for a repair. Much, right? much more favorable. And, and that's, I, that's I don't mean like for. homeowners insurance. I mean, just literally to say, okay, should I maybe get like a seven eight hundred dollar insurance policy that i turn into the purchase pay 20 percent of it let the bank pay 80 percent of the rest and for the first three or five years or however long you want to go if anything happens it's covered exactly yep 
and you're going to get a better deal on insurance. It just is. Like I said, homes built 2004 or newer, you're going to get a better deal. It's just that simple. Yeah, I mean, because they also know that the likelihood of really being called upon is much lower, obviously. Exactly. Okay. They, they've got bigger analyst departments than you and I have, that's for sure. So <laughs> exactly, I just exactly. yeah, <laughs> but I, I always pretend that we make it up with common sense. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Well, Jim, the two questions that are not related to investing in Florida, just ask them for every guest on our show. The first one is, if you could meet anybody, who would it be and why? Oh, wow. Could it be anyone? Do they have to be alive or can they be deceased? Uh, totally up to you. <laughs> I would have met my, my dad's dad. He passed away when my father was six years old. So I never got to meet him. Uh, my dad barely got to meet him, but I've, I've have his diaries from, you know, a hundred years ago. And it's just fascinating. He just seemed like a really great guy. And, and that's who I'd want to meet. Yeah, that's a good thing to say, because I remember I was fortunate to meet my grandpa and, and be around him when I was growing up. No, and that's nice. he gave me a lot of, it's kind of funny, initially, when he gave me these statements, you know, like for it gives you just one, and many people have heard me say this in when I'm a guest on shows and stuff like that. One of them was never trust a statistic that you didn't manipulate yourself. Right. Oh, there you go. <laughs> when I first, when I first heard man. that, you know, it just completely went over my head. I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? And as I get older, <laughs> I more and more understand. And there are so many, right? Like that initially you don't even get what the heck is that about. And I, as I get older, I find out, yeah, there's a lot of truth to this one and that one and so forth. You know, so. Oh, I love that. Like inflation a is a good one where this statement really, really... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. The last question, Jim, is uh, if you had a time machine, where would you go and why? If I had a time machine, I would probably go back about five to seven years. Okay. Because I've just had so much fun adventuring with my family. I would do it all again. I think that's how short I'd go back just to relive that again. Yeah, cool. Well, there's no rules. It's your time machine. <laughs> you can go whenever you want to. Okay, well, wonderful. So I mentioned the website. I mentioned before we started recording that I filled out that little uh, sheet. But if people are interested, you mentioned the numbers, you mentioned your approach. We are kind of already doing it, but I still, if yeah. somebody says, hey, I want to talk to Jim. Uh, how We're do always looking to partner with good, solid groups with that share our fundamentals and principles. So if you're, you know, you and I will speak more, obviously, of, right. of collaborating together. But if people are interested, they can go to jjplaybook.com. That was uh, something that my wife and I created about our journey into real estate and passive income. You know, how we came up and picked our principles and landed on Bill Durant and what it's done for us and our monthly passive income and how you can follow the same step by step. Uh, and then our building company, Southern Impression Homes. Dot com. You can look that up to learn more about our building company, our history, some case studies on our clients in the areas in Florida that we focus on. Yeah, that's very good. And we're going to put that definitely in the show notes for everybody to be able to get to that. So I want to say thank you for the time. We went a little over, but it was really interesting. And I, as you said, we're going to stay in touch and hopefully have more investments in Florida. Sounds good, Axel. Nice meeting you. Take care. Thank you, Jim. <laughs>